is Our American Stories. And now, here's the story of one of America's top comedians who became so successful, it scared him to death. Here's Dave Chappelle's story. This whole world is just drug-infested, hate-infested, drug-infested world. Hate drugs. I heard the worst drug story. You know what my friend told me? You know what he's dealing with? His landlord is hooked on crack. That's, that's terrible. That's pressure. Your landlord's hooked on crack. That means you've got to have the rent. <laughs> he come around. I got the rent. It's not even due yet. It's the 10th. Come on, I need it. <laughs> well, let me just get $20 of it now and then uh, just give me the rest of the end of the month. Every couple hours. Hey, look, I'm going to need some more of the rent. This building's falling apart. Things came up. Comes home early from a party. Landlord's in the crib going through it. What are you doing in my house? Ah! Where's the sink? I came to fix it. It's in the kitchen. I thought it was in the drawer. I'll fix it tomorrow when I come for the rent. Dave Chappelle is not your average Hollywood story. Born in Washington, D.C., the youngest of three children, both of his parents were college professors, and his mother was even a Unitarian minister. After graduating high school, Chappelle realized that he wanted to be in show business when his dad gave him some valuable advice. My mother and my grandmother were freaked out. You know, I was the first person in my family not to go to college that had not been a slave. (laughs) So I was really breaking from tradition. And uh, it was like a graduation lunch we were having, and they had my dad come and talk to me, and my dad takes me outside, and he's like, listen. He says, to be an actor is a lonely life. Everybody wants to make it, and you might not make it. And I said to my dad, well, well that depends on what making it is, Dad. He was a smart, smart-ass kid. It depends on what making it is, Dad. He says, what do you mean? I said, well, you're a teacher. I said, if I could make a teacher salary doing comedy, I think that's better than being a teacher. And he started laughing. He said, if you keep that attitude, I think you should go. He said, but name your price in the beginning. If it ever gets more expensive than the price you name, get out of it. Chappelle moved to New York City and performed at Harlem's famed Apollo Theater in front of the infamous Amateur Night audience. But he was booed off stage. Dave Chappelle later described the experience as the moment that gave him the courage to continue his show business aspirations. So he quickly made a name for himself on the New York comedy circuit. At age 19, he made his film debut in Mel Brooks' Robin Hood, Men in Tights. He also appeared on Star Search three times but lost. The same year, Chappelle was offered the role of Bubba in Forrest Gump. Concerned the character was demeaning and the movie would bomb, he'd turn down the part. Just a few years later, his first lead role was in the 1998 comedy film Half-Baked, which he co-wrote. It was around this time that Chappelle landed a role in a pilot TV show based on his failure on stage at the Apollo. I was 23 when I was doing Half-Baked. I was getting ready to turn 24. And I was going through all the things that a dude goes through when it goes from one level to the next, starring in my, a movie that I wrote. So things start getting crazy around you. And my 24th birthday was coming on August the 24th, and I said, this is going to be a big one. And the morning that I turned 24, phone rang, and 
my sister was like, Dad had a stroke. For the next year, I watched my father teeter on life and death. And it was just all this stuff, man. Like I was a, Dad was down, half-baked, didn't come out the way I wanted it to come out. I was real upset about that. Because it was a real cool script. And then I saw it. I was like, hey, man, you made a weed movie for kids. I get a call on my cell phone from Hollywood. I'm like, hello, Hollywood. They're like, hello, Dave. <laughs> They're like, that pilot you did for Fox, the, looks like they want to pick it up. We need you to come out because they want to meet with you. And I was like, well, listen, I can't really come out right now. Got a real bad situation at home. Can we talk about this on the phone? No, no, they would rather meet with you in person. Ah! I jumped on that plane and left my father's bedside, which I regret to this day. And I went out and I sat with these people in this room. Yeah, Dave, we really liked the show, but the, the pilot episode was about me getting booed off stage at the Apollo. They go, you know, but what are we going to do about it? I mean, there's not really any white people in it. So well, it's about the Apollo. It's not really white. Well, you know, we were thinking about the girl on the show. We didn't think she was that funny, not that good looking. I think we should recast her. Maybe, and they start using terms like universal appeal. Basically saying they want me to recast a girl with a white woman. I say, yeah, I don't think I can do this, and, and, and I quit. The following day, Dave Chappelle would learn a valuable lesson that he would never forget about the media and himself. The cover variety. Chappelle pulls the race card. The race card. And I get calls from... Newsweek, 60 Minutes, everybody, we want your story. <laughs> now I'm scared to death. I'm like Rosa Parks or something. I'm like, I'm not ready for this. <laughs> I was just venting a little bit. And then, a few months later, dad dies. And that's hard for a young dude in his life. That's a, that's a real tough loss. I was there when he died. and He went from being my father to what are we going to do? With the body, within moments, it was over. And I'm going through all this stuff, and this is the guy I would usually talk to, right? Dad. And I got to figure this out for myself. I don't want to figure this out for myself. You know, I was beat down. I wasn't living right. You know what I mean? Like, the weed thing was just bad habit at this point. And, and you know what I mean? All these, you know, chicken head girls you mess with when it comes with the territory. I'm just being real. Just being real. It wasn't living right, man. I didn't feel good. And, and the stand-up stuff was just some angry stuff. It was just like I was kind of bottoming out. But when my dad died, because I'd been commuting back and forth to Ohio so much, that's when I bought the farm. When we come back, the rest of the Dave Chappelle story, where he turns his back on Hollywood and a $50 million contract. This is Our American Stories.
This is Our American Story, and now we return to the story of Dave Chappelle. When we left off, Dave's father had died, so he decided to get his family out of L.A. and move to a farm in Ohio. Here's Jesse. So Dave and his family moved to Yellow Springs, Ohio, where his father had lived, buying a 65-acre farm. The illusion of fame and fortune in Hollywood was shattered forever. It's something so real in contrast to what Hollywood is, a very powerful illusion. And when your dad dies, it kind of just broke the spell, like, oh, this is bullshit. Look, I've been spending so much time doing this. What about my family? What about my friends? Wait, whatever happened to my friends? Dang, I don't even have any friends. Ugh. So I bounced, man. And, uh, New Year's Eve, 1999, I, I moved into that farm, and that was it. As far as I was concerned, I was done with show business. But his career in show business was just beginning. In 2003, he debuted his own weekly sketch comedy show on Comedy Central called Chappelle Show. After just two seasons, it was a massive success. Due to the show's popularity, Comedy Central's new parent company, Viacom, offered Chappelle a $50 million contract to continue production of Chappelle's show for two more years. Season 3 was scheduled to begin airing on May 31st, 2005, but Chappelle stunned fans and the industry when he abruptly left during production for South Africa. Let's start the show. Immediately following his departure, tabloids quickly and repeatedly speculated that Chappelle's exit was driven by drug addiction or a mental health issue. I was freaked out, man, with the fame thing and, and being called uh, crazy and drug addict and all these things. Uh, scared me. You know, being treated that way. Like I'm not a person anymore. And then I got to make some real choices, man. Is that what I want for myself? Did I get too big? Because I like people. I like entertaining. And the higher up I go, for some reason, the less happy I am. You know, is it going to get to the point where I'm doing a strip tease on TRL or waving a gun on the street, <laughs> saying they're trying to kill me? No, I'm not going to let it get to that point. I'm going to go to Africa. I'm going to find a way to, I'm going to find a way to be myself, man. I got to, in Africa, there's a small community of people that don't know anything about the work I do, and they just treat me like I'm a regular dude. So I knew that in Africa I'd have a place to sleep, that I wouldn't have to feel strange. And, you know, when they would call me crackhead and all these things in the country where I'm from, in Africa, they didn't know anything. They was feeding me and taking care of me and taking me to the mall and just regular stuff. And it just made me feel good. It just reminded me that I was a person, you know. It would be some time before Dave Chappelle went back to the United States from Africa, and 10 years before he would return to the stage with his stand-up comedy. I didn't even know they were saying those things about me. Then I called home, and people would be like, oh my God, are you all right? Yeah, chill, I'm in Africa, baby, what's going on? <laughs> and then I got a call from a journalist that had been working on a story, and he was like, yeah, rumor mill's going on about you. Just want to clear a few things up, and I'm like, yeah, hey, what's going on? Okay, uh... Do you smoke crack? I said, what? Do you smoke crack? Did you graduate from high school? Uh, I mean, it was all these crazy questions. 
And I thought about never coming back. I said, this, this place is crazy. Like, I'm, I'm that dude. I just thought about all the things that celebrities go through and what celebrities become in our culture. You know, if you Brad Pitt and Jennifer Aniston and your marriage is breaking up, that's an awful thing. But to see that speculation in people got to sting a little bit. And then I realized, oh, my God, I'm one of those people. That's a small club, man. That's a weird place to be. Ain't really no going back. You can't, you can't get unfamous. You can get infamous. So I got scared. I'm not going to lie, y'all. I was scared to death. And I, I didn't touch the mic. But, you know, it was cool, man. The first time I went back out and did stand-up, it was in Cincinnati. So it's not far from the farm. I said, if I got to run, I can get home fast. <laughs> and... Um, Club sold out real fast. I played a comedy club. And man, when I walked out on that stage and them people were screaming, I get teary-eyed just thinking about it. Because this industry can say whatever they want, but man, people will hold you up. And that crowd, man, my spirits were so low and they were just holding me up. And I, I hadn't told jokes, but this was just coming back like, cry the kid again, you're the best. Oh, man, I was just, I was, I was just doing it, man. In August of 2013, Dave Chappelle returned to full-time touring stand-up comedy as a headliner. In 2017, Netflix released two never-before-seen specials which would hail directly from Chappelle's personal comedy vault. The specials were an immediate success as Netflix announced a month later that they were the most viewed comedy specials in Netflix history. Also in 2017, Dave Chappelle walked into the newly renovated Chappelle Auditorium at Allen University in Columbia, South Carolina. Chappelle stopped to admire the work of Bishop William D. Chappelle, whom the auditorium is named after. He was a pastor, businessman, Allen University president, and more importantly, Dave Chappelle's great-grandfather. After being awarded the key to the city by the mayor, Dave Chappelle stopped by the auditorium to speak to an audience filled with students about the decisions he's made in his own life and the importance of staying true to yourself. For all the things that I've done, I'm most renowned for what I didn't do. I, I've made decisions in my career that a lot of people have called insane. 2004, I had a $50 million deal on the table, and in a crisis of conscience, flipped the table over and walked away. Went to South Africa. Everyone said I was running away from the money. That is not true. In fact, I still want that money. <laughs> the idea that I wanted to just share with you guys is the idea that sometimes you, you do what you think is best. Uh, whether anybody understands it or not. I heard a story about my father where someone told me he used to do statistics for a company in D.C. The company he did statistics for started doing business with the South African government. So he quit his job. It's caused a lot of problems between his, him and his wife. It's hard for a man when he can't provide for his family the way he wants to. And he suffered through it. And a generation later, when I had my crisis of conscience, I was able to go to a free South Africa and get away from the heat. This idea that what you do in your lifetime informs the generations that comes after you is something I keep thinking about, something that is so much bigger 
than just ourselves. And today I'm standing in front of you guys, and I know you guys are like, oh, I know you're bored. But I see family of mine in the front row that, that I, someone who I've never met, and I just realize how, how all, all of us are, are connected. That my great-grandfather built something more substantial than buildings. He, he built a community. And he built, more importantly than a community, he, he built a way. People are trying to replace the ideas of good and bad with better or worse. And that is incorrect. You got to keep your ethics intact because uh, good and bad is a compass that helps you find a way. And a person that only does what's better or worse is the easiest type of person to control. They are a mouse in a maze that just finds the cheese. But the one who knows about good and bad will realize that he's in a maze. It's okay to be afraid because you can't be brave or courageous without fear. The idea of being courageous is that even though you're scared, you just do the right thing anyway. So in 2004, I walked away from $50 million and in November, I made a deal for $60 million. So, although I am not the most famous comedian of my time, I would like to know what their great-grandfathers did. I'm, I'm very proud today. Thank you very much. And that's the story of the one and only Dave Chappelle testament to being true to yourself he walked away from a 50 million dollar contract fame and the adoration of his fans just to be there for his family and himself dave chappelle is not your average hollywood story for our american stories i'm jesse edwards American stories and our next story. Well, it's a great music story. And we're calling this one The Billion Dollar Quintet. Here's Greg Hengler with more. The Traveling Wilburys had a short history, but a long past. The creation of the rock group was a fortunate accident. Nicknamed the Billion Dollar Quintet, the five musical legends, three of whom were in their 40s, had gathered to assist a former Beatle in writing and recording what was intended as a throwaway B-side track. Tom Petty at age 38, whose career was at its peak, was by far the youngest member of the group. She's a good girl, loves her mama, loves Jesus, in America too. 
Roy Orbison, at 52, who was called the greatest singer in the world by Elvis, was the oldest. Here's Roy singing You Got It, the hit he co-wrote with future fellow Wilburys, Jeff Lynne and Tom Petty. Anything you want, you got it. And then there was former Beatle, George Harrison. Here comes the sun, here comes the sun, I say it's all right. In 1963, a young Bob Dylan would ask future bandmate Roy Orbison to record the song he wrote, Don't Think Twice, It's All Right. Orbison would later regret his decision to reject this Dylan masterpiece. I'm a thinking and a wondering, walking down the road. I once loved a woman, a child I am told. I give her my heart, but she wanted my soul. But don't think twice, it's all right. Finally, there's probably the least known member of the traveling Wilburys but no less talented. Singer-songwriter and record super-producer Jeff Lynne. Lynne co-founded the Electric Light Orchestra, or ELO, a rock band inspired by the Beatles' complex orchestral sound of the late 60s. Between 1972 and 1986, Jeff Lynne's ELO put more singles in the top 40 charts than any other band in the world. George Harrison's career was on fire in the late 1980s. His comeback album, Cloud Nine, was certified platinum in the U.S., thanks to the production work of Jeff Lynne. Then, in a pivotal moment in rock history, Warner Brothers told Harrison he needed to record a B-side track for his single, This Is Love. On the evening before the recording session, Harrison dined at a French restaurant in Los Angeles with Jeff Lynne, who had brought along Roy Orbison. With the three legends sitting together at one table, Harrison asked Orbison and Lynne to help him record the B-side. They agreed. For the sake of convenience, Lynne suggested they record the track at Bob Dylan's garage studio. Harrison telephoned Dylan, who agreed to the idea. Needing a guitar that he had left with Tom Petty, Harrison called and was pleasantly surprised Hello? that Petty also wanted to attend. Drums, please! The recording session took place on April 5th, 1988. After dining on some barbecued chicken in Dylan's backyard garden, the five musicians worked out the song's lyrics. Thankfully for us, George Harrison understood that history was being made, and so he took out his personal video recorder and began shooting. Does it say record in here, George? Is it supposed to say record in the viewfinder? Yeah. Oh, you see at the top? Oh, yeah, there it goes. Here's George Harrison. The thing about the Wilburys for me is if we'd have tried to plan that or if anybody had tried to, you know, say, let's form this band and get these people in it, 
it would never happen. It's impossible. My guitar was at Tom Petty's house, so Tom, Jeff picked me up, we went over to Bob's, and I got the first line, just said, Bean beat up, battered round. Bean beat up and battered round. And then, wham, they just kept coming with all these lines. <laughs> and uh, there was Bob was saying, oh, what's it called, what's it about? And I finally saw behind the door this big box with a sticker on it saying, Handle with Kerr. I said, Handle with Kerr? He said, oh yeah, good. I liked the song and the way it had turned out with all these people on it so much. I just carried it around in my pocket for ages, thinking, well, what can I do with this thing? And the only thing to do I could think of was do another nine, make an album. Here's Tom Petty. And I said, yeah, that sounds like a real good idea, because it had really been such magic doing the first track. Petty recalled how the group's lineup was finalized. We all jumped in a car to go see Roy play in Anaheim. All four of us ran into Roy's dressing room and said, We want you to be in our band, Roy. He said, That would be great. Harrison made the final proposal official by dropping to his knees and formally asking Orbison to join the band. The five men soon celebrated with a band meeting at Denny's on Sunset Boulevard in Hollywood. Dylan proposed they call the band Roy and the Boys, but they settled on the quirky name The Traveling Wilburys. All five men are rhythm guitarists, but there are no excessive solos, and the boys did a fantastic job at sharing the spotlight. Harrison did emerge as the chief Wilbury, and when the band returned to record the rest of their album, his video recorder was on again to capture the memories, starting with Tom Petty's arrival on day one. All in a day's work for a Wilburn. And we had like nine or ten days that we knew we could get Bob for. And uh, everybody else was relatively free. So we just said, well, let's do it. We'll just write us tune a day and do it that way. It was very exciting. We were in Dave Stewart's house. And it was a nice environment because you could kind of sit outside. It was warm and the doors were always open. So we set up in his kitchen. It wasn't soundproof or anything. And we just put like five chairs around the kitchen and then put the microphones up. And, uh, and that's it. So all them guitar parts, you know, all them acoustic guitars are just in this kitchen. Here's Roy Orbison. We did from music. That's what it was all about. There wasn't a lot of deciding of what to do. Not a lot of time spent planning out anything. So we just uh, wrote the best songs that we could write and uh, sang them as best we could. There it's Laura and I got out of the car. Oh, no, she was long and tall. She was oh, long and short and fat. <laughs> she was dressed to kill. Yeah, that's good. She was Out to hill. give me a thrill. She was over the hill. She was yeah. <laughs> over the hill. What's that? She was dressed to kill. She was over the hill. Here's Jeff Lynn. Just sitting around in a circle, like five of us just strumming acoustic guitars and coming up with a song. In, in like a couple of hours that was almost ready to record, you know, and then recording it like on the evening. It's pretty sort of unbelievable stuff. I looked at her eyes. They were full of surprise. They were full of surprise. It seems to us like they were filled with surprise. Yeah, they were full of surprise. 
Here's Tom Petty recording the song Last Night as the band members look on. And when we come back, more of this remarkable story, the billion-dollar quintet, here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories. And to sign up for all that we do, go to ouramericannetwork.org and uh, hit our email list and we'll get to you and let you know what we're doing here on the show. And now let's return to the billion dollar quintet, the story of the traveling Wilburys. Sometimes we'd sing the same song, you know, just to see who sounded good or if this key fits somebody. That was a lot of the fun of it. And George would kind of audition us, which could be really intimidating, you know, because, like, you know, Roy Orbison would sing the song and then they'd send you out to sing it, you know. And it was like, well, damn, that's really intimidating. Tweeter and the Monkey Man was recorded in only two takes and was notable for its many references to Bruce Springsteen's songs. Here's Harrison discussing the Dylan recording as we also hear Dylan getting feedback. Tweet and the Monkey Man was like really Tom Petty and uh, Bob, well, Jeff and I were there too, but we were just sitting around in the kitchen and he, for some reason, was talking about all this stuff which didn't make much sense to me. You know, it was that Americana kind of stuff. And we got a tape cassette and put it on and then transcribed everything they were saying. It was just fantastic watching him do it because he had like one take warming himself up and on take two he sang that tweet and the monkey man right through and that's it let's get them near the souvenir stand George Harrison and Roy Orbison first met in May 1963 when the Beatles were scheduled as the opening act for Orbison. What Orbison did not know at the time was that the Fab Four's second single, Please Please Me, 
had been written by John Lennon in an attempt to emulate Orbison. Ringo Starr would later admit, Roy Orbison was the only act that the Beatles didn't want to follow. Here's Tom Petty and Jeff Lynne discussing Roy Orbison as Roy records the Traveling Wilburys tune, Not Alone Anymore. If you're just sitting on the sofa working on a song and Roy's singing, even when he sang soft, it's such a tone, such a sound, you know, such a, a gift, really. We used to always tell him, Roy, you must be the, the best singer in the world. And he'd say, yeah. Lynn's production skills always makes a great track even better. hated the notion of the supergroup, which were popular in the 1970s. I never meant to be so bad to you. They wanted to soften the notion that they fit into this category. After all, most so-called supergroups don't exactly live up to the term. Michael Palin, one of the members of the comedy group Monty Python, was hired by Harrison to write the band's fictional biography. Palin chronicled the short story of five half-brothers who had one father, but five different mothers. Consequently, out of sheer self-amusement, all five members of the group decided to use aliases. Their real names did not appear anywhere on the album or cover. Here's Harrison and Lynn discussing the bittersweet track, Congratulations. The only Wilbury song Dylan has performed in concert. One of the most amazing things ever about the Wilburys was this holes apart thing of Roy and Bob Dylan. That's what I thought was wonderful, the best singer and the best lyricist, and they're both in the same group. End of the Line became the album's second single. Orbison stated at the time, I've been rediscovered by young kids who had never heard of me before the Wilburys. Walking down the street. But just four days before they shot the music video for End of the Line, and just three weeks after the album's release, Roy Orbison suffered a fatal heart attack. Although he had complained of chest pains over the previous month, mentioning the discomfort to his close friend Johnny Cash, Orbison did not take the symptoms seriously. Here's Tom Petty. top and, and I'm sure he knew that. The last conversation I had with him, 
It was a couple of days before he died on the phone, and he was just so thrilled that the Wilburys had gone platinum, and he was just, isn't it great? It's great. We all felt that Roy was a real special part of the group, and it was just our ace in the hole to have that voice come in. And he was so nice, you know, and it was uh, so painful when he died. The video for End of the Line was shot inside a vintage passenger car on a moving train. Maybe somewhere down the road away During Orbison's vocal solos, the camera focused on a framed portrait of the singer, which was perched near a weathered rocking chair that held a resting, upright guitar. Orbison became the first musician since Elvis in 1977 to land two posthumous albums in the top five. And the Traveling Wilburys album, Handle With Care, would also win accolades such as a Grammy and were ranked number two by Rolling Stone in the category of Best New American Band, right behind Guns N' Roses. Unfortunately, the band never lived up to the traveling aspect of their name. They never toured, not one live appearance. Here's Tom Petty, George Harrison, and Roy Orbison. The whole experience was just some of the best days of my life, really. She wrote a long letter. And I think it probably was for us all. On a short piece of paper. The thing I guess would be hardest for people to understand is what good friends we were. It really had very little to do with combining a bunch of famous people. It was a bunch of friends that just happened to be really good at making music. None of this would have happened without him. It was George's band. It was always George's band. And it was a dream he'd had for a long time. From my point of view, I just tried to preserve our relationship. I worked so hard to make sure that, you know, all the guys who were in that band and, and consequently on record and film, their friendship wasn't abused. Just to preserve our friendship, that was the underlying contribution, I think, what I was trying to do. The traveling Wilburys remain a cherished part of rock lore. The gathering of five rock legends offered a lesson. Some supergroups really can succeed, make great music and sell lots of records. They would record just two albums and release 25 songs. In its list of the best albums of the 1980s, Rolling Stone placed the Traveling Wilburys' first album at number 70. Petty's solo effort, Full Moon Fever, which was the best-selling album of his career, and an album also produced by Jeff Lynne, came in at 92. What Remains of the Traveling Wilburys is a mystique of unfulfilled possibilities, much like a rock band that does not come out for an encore, even as the fans remain standing on their feet, clapping wildly and cheering at the top of their lungs. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. 
This is Our American Stories, and when you hear that music, it's time for our final thought segment. And we do that about people who are about to die, eulogies, and death's a part of life, and sometimes we got to go there. And today we have a contributor reading his article entitled, How My Father's Cancer Diagnosis Saved Our Rocky Relationship. And the writing comes from Willie Lynch of Cambridge, Massachusetts, a scientist and a university administrator. He wrote this piece for his wife's best friend that had lost her husband to cancer. As he sat thinking of what his wife's friend was going through, he thought of what his own mother went through when his father died. When he thought of his friend's kids, he remembered what it was like when he lost his dad. He wrote it down and sent it to the Boston Globe, and when they accepted it, he sent the check they gave him to his wife's best friend. When Reader's Digest published it, he sent her that money too. Here is Willie reading the story. Nothing stays the same for long. Things and people change, often for the worse it seems, but once in a while, very much for the better. I grew up on a small farm, living a life that I took for granted. I had a dog without a leash, mountains in whatever direction I looked, and awoke to the call of pheasants in the alfalfa fields. My father also worked in the city as a welder. He was quiet, distant, you might say. He was not highly educated, but smart, with an engineer's way of looking at problems. He was a man made of leather, brass, and chewing tobacco who tried to teach my brother and me useful things, including respect. He had a temper. I did not like him very much. One day I came home from school and his car was already there. Once inside, I was told by my mother that he didn't feel well. His back hurt. My father never missed work. In fact, when he came home, he went to the barn to work even more. I remember peeking around the corner at him as he lay on his bed in the middle of the day. I was in elementary school. Multiple myeloma is a type of blood cancer. It starts in the cells that normally make antibodies for the body to use in its immune response against infections. When those cells become malignant, they make antibodies like crazy. As the cancer grows, the person who has it shrinks. The disease saps the body's energy and the antibodies cause problems for other cells and tissues. Bones eventually look like Swiss cheese, and when they break, they never heal. For the last year of his life, my father's entire day consisted of rising from his hospital bed in the living room and slowly walking to his chair to sit and think. He was predictably in that chair when I came home one day during the ninth grade. 
I do not remember where my mother and brother were, but the two of us were alone. He asked me to sit down. What followed still moves me these decades later. He told me about his life, his family growing up, what it was like in the Pacific during World War II, his loves, his heartbreaks. It was like a pipe had burst, his inner self rushing out to me in a great flood. He had been speaking for maybe an hour or more when I realized that he was doing more than telling. He was asking to be forgiven. All it took was that understanding within me and I forgave everything immediately. When he died, I didn't return to school for a few days. My biggest dread coming back was gym class. It was poorly supervised and bullies ran the show. True to form, on my first day, I was standing there in my shorts when an all too familiar voice bellowed, Lynch. It was a guy who had given many of us a few lumps over the years. I turned to face him and said, what do you want? The other boys didn't say a word as they waited for the beatdown. I heard your dad died, he said. Is that true? I quietly replied, yes. He didn't punch me. He didn't even move. Instead, he said, I'm sorry. I was shocked. I'm sure I cried. Those two words are how I have remembered that kid ever since. What do you do when your enemies reveal that they are also human? I think you either forgive and move forward or hold on to resentment and live in the past. I'm certainly not glad that my father got sick, but at the same time, I realized that if he hadn't, I might never have come to love him. It's the darndest thing. It is the darndest thing, and thank you, Willie, for those words, for sharing. And this originally appeared in the Boston Globe. This piece made its way to the Reader's Digest, and it's making its way to you. And we'd love to hear your final thoughts about your loved ones. Go to ouramericannetwork.org. Willie Lynch's story, in a way, his dad's story, and that bully's story, here on Our American Stories. Here's the story of a very old decree 
Forced on King John as he made off with the revenue Of us barons and the aristocracy He took our land and for a laugh held our sons hostage too Magna Carta Magna Carta Told King John he's gotta be This is Lee Habib and this is How American Stories And you're listening to this interesting music about, of all things, the Magna Carta And the idea of setting history to music, well, it worked out pretty well with the composer of Hamilton setting Ron Chernow's remarkable biography into one of the greatest hit plays of all time. And that's what we're about to dive into, not Hamilton, the Magna Carta, during our twice-monthly series, Rule of Law, on what the rule of law is, what happens when it's absent and present in human life, and how it silently shapes the world around us without us even knowing it. And our own Alex Cortez brings us the story of this British document that paved the way for what we now know and love as the United States of America. Magna Carta was negotiated in the great meadow of Runnymede. And it's still a very atmospheric place today. The great meadow still stretches outside the Thames. We're listening to the preeminent scholar on Magna Carta, British historian David Carpenter, who has an appropriately named book, Magna Carta. It's very close to Heathrow Airport, and the great aeroplanes which take off from Heathrow come up and they fly over Runnymede, and they often then turn and and fly all the way down its length and disappear into distance. And it's rather symbolic in a way, because it's as though they're taking Magna Carta with them through the world. And of course that is true, that the Charter has become one of the most, perhaps the most famous document in world constitutional history. Okay, but what... Is it this thing that's in the dead language of Latin? This thing that politicians like Britain's former Prime Minister David Cameron debated with his opponents? Harriet Harman. Last month, the Prime Minister celebrated the Magna Carta. If he accepts that in a democracy there needs to be an effective check on executive power, Will he abandon his plans to water down the Human Rights Act? The point she makes about the Magna Carta, uh, I would say, uh, demonstrates that there were human rights before the Human Rights Act. Um, This thing that's even allowed such a raucous debate as the one you just heard to happen every single week during the legendary question time in Britain's Parliament. And this thing that the same David Cameron did not know what it meant in English, his country's language, when of all people, David Letterman asked him. And the literal translation is was what? You have magna... I, I, again, you're testing me. Um, <laughs> boy, it'd be good if you knew this. Yeah, well, it would be. <laughs> this thing that the rapper Jay-Z named one of his albums after, and we have no clue why. People who have time to debate such things in online forums say that they think it's because Magna means greater, and Carta sounds close to Jay-Z's actual last name, Carter, meaning that Jay-Z thinks of himself as great, which is as close as you can get to the opposite of the spirit of Magna Carta. Holy Grail. 
Now, you might be saying to yourself, Alex, that was a cutesy little detour that you just brought us through, but you still haven't answered. What is Magna Carta? Well, I'm not ready to answer yet, but David Carpenter is with a little prehistory. Going way, way back to the reign of King John, all the way back to the 13th century. 1214, there was a great deal of resentment in England about the whole government of King John. His manipulation of justice, denial of justice, his seizure of people's property without due legal process. Because John, if you got against him, would simply send in the heavies. He would send in his household knights to seize your property, possibly even to imprison you. There was also loathing of John personally, loathing of John. And that was because he was a murderer, murdering some of his greatest opponents. He murdered his nephew Arthur, who was a rival for the throne. And in the most notorious of all, he murdered the greatest noble woman of the age, Matilda de Breos, starved her to death in the vaults of Corfe Castle, along with her eldest son. And that wasn't John's only problem. His great quarrel with the church. And that was because... In 1204, 1205, the Archbishop of Canterbury died, and John thought he had a wonderful successor, which was a loyal agent, the Bishop of Norwich. But the monks of Canterbury elected somebody else, the Pope intervened, and the Pope insisted that instead of John's candidate, the Archbishop of Canterbury should be Stephen Langton. Now, Stephen Langton was actually an Englishman, but he was a professor at the University of Paris. He was a great academic. And John just thought, well, how can I accept as archbishop someone I don't know? I mean, university academics didn't swim into John's orbit very often. And so I think in some ways he said, I don't know him, but also he's been a professor. He's practiced teaching at the great capital of my great enemy, Paris. And so John refused to have him, and that led into a long quarrel with the Pope, Pope Innocent III. In the end, England was placed under an interdict. John was excommunicated. What it meant was that Mass couldn't be celebrated, people couldn't be buried in consecrated ground, churches were closed. I think it did have a profound effect on the... On the psyche of people in England, depressing effects. And of course, obviously, it's John who's, in a sense, to blame for it. And the, the accounts of it, they are horrific. They, they do indicate a, a very profound trauma caused by the interdict. On the other hand, it's perfectly true, government went on. It didn't stop John exacting large sums of money from his subjects. And in some ways, John almost welcomed the interdict because it meant he could make even more money from the church. He simply seized church property. Uh, And and so in that sense, John came from it. I I suppose I ought to say, well, what about John personally? Well, I mean, he had a reputation for impiety, for impiety. I mean, John laughed during Mass. The records of his own government show him constantly having to give alms to the poor because he'd broken various fast days because he'd eaten meat on Friday or gone hunting on a saint's day or gone hawking when there were restrictions on those kinds of activities. So John was notoriously impious. And yet there was still more. And Magna Carta, if it's about one thing, is about money. Now... Already by the time John came to the throne, there was very great resentment at the high levels of taxation in England. Well, 
John tripled his revenues, tripled them. And that was because in 1204, he lost a large part of the Continental Empire. And so he then spent 10 furious years in England, rebuilding his treasure, getting as much money as he could to try and win that empire back. Everyone suffered from these financial exactions, the church, the barons, knights, free tenants, all the way down to the peasantry. And in 1214, he launched that campaign on the continent. It was a disaster. His allies were decisively defeated at a great battle in Flanders, the Battle of Bouvines. John's campaign in the south of France ran into the ground and got nowhere. So when he comes back to England in the autumn of 1214, his treasure is spent, his prestige is in tatters. And that's when his baronial enemies went for him. They took a great oath that they would bind themselves together and not make peace with the king until he gave the concessions they wanted. And they were already thinking in terms of a great charter which would restrict his operations and solve all these grievances in terms of detail. That was what was so new, is that the barons put together, uh, helped by churchmen, a very, very detailed program which restricts the king. And in the end, John gives way. Gives way to meeting at Runnymede and considering their demands. Why does he give way in 1215? Well, I said his situation was parlous when he got back from his campaign in France in the autumn of 1214, but it wasn't actually completely desperate at that stage. He still had control of all his castles in England. He still had sufficient money to hire mercenary soldiers. And so in the course of 1215, first months of 1215, there's really a standoff between John and his opponents. Neither side want quite to commit themselves to outright war. And then something happened in May 1215, um, which destroyed John's position, and that was the fall of London. The barons, by a clever ruse, got hold of London, and that meant John knew he could not win the war, because London's the great capital of the country, its wealth is now in baronial hands, it's far too large to besiege. John knew there was no easy way to win the war, and so what he thought was, right, that these wretched people are demanding this charter, I'll grant it to them. Uh, I don't think it'll ever be enforced, but nonetheless, I'll make the concessions they want, and probably that will uh, mean they'll all go home, uh, and there'll be peace, and then possibly, I hope, things will go on much as before. And when we come back more on the story of Magna Carta, first salvo in our Rule of Law series, more after these messages. This is Our American Stories. Our American Stories, and we continue with Alex and the story of Magna Carta. On June 10th, 1215, King John and the Barons meet at Runnymede. And just imagine this epic meeting of minds and of power. A king for the first time in human history significantly giving into the demands of people who are not kings. We do know quite a bit about the scene at Runnymede. 
and it's wonderfully described by Ralph of Coggeshall, abbot of the Cistercian Abbey in Essex, and he describes the great tents and pavilions stretched out across Runnymede, the great, great pavilions of the king, and they towered above the smaller tents of the, of the great baron. So you can imagine that great meadow just full of people. Now, during all that time, between 10th and 19th of June, which is when they were all encamped at Runnymede, we know that John was actually living at Windsor Castle. And I think that's because he felt unsafe in Runnymede. You know, if you spend the night there, surrounded by these hordes of your enemy barons and knights, you might be unsafe. So, conversely, of course, the barons weren't prepared to come to Windsor because there they would have been in the king's power. All of them feeling safe, as safe as one can feel, on neutral ground amongst the enemy, came up with the Magna Carta. Charter was conceded on June the 15th. That's the day John gave it. It's, the Charter ends given by our hand in the meadow of Runnymede on the 15th of June in the 17th year of our reign. But when John was finished, that didn't mean that it was finished. And there were another four days before the assembled barons actually accepted the, the peace that the Charter had brought. A process that by itself was a victory for humankind. That not a king single-handedly, but that we together decide how we want our society to be run. Concessions that the barons couldn't have possibly known would become one of the greatest in history, even called by some the birth certificate of the rule of law, the guarantee that publicly known and stable law will rule the day, allowing all of us to go about our days, living our lives, building our dreams, our families, our careers without fear, as long as we respect the law too, as opposed to the thousands of years before then of rule by whim, the whim of the dictator. But these parents did know that something big enough did happen, at least for their own lives, that they celebrated with their king. John then did celebrate with a great feast. Probably that was at, at Windsor Castle. And so just for a moment, uh, it looked as though there was going to be a genuine reconciliation. But that would change. Before we get there, though, we continue the celebration of the historic concessions that these barons did achieve in writing. The very first chapter of Magna Carta protects the liberties of the church and restricts the ability of the king to place his own people into bishoprics. And, and so in the end, John submitted. Submitted to a civil institution ruling itself. Then there were the winds on the hated taxes like this strangely named one. 
there was a tax called scootage. And this meant that if the king didn't want the military service of a great baron, he could demand a money payment himself, scootage. And that's because the Latin scutagium means a shield, a shield. And so scootage has been taken relatively rarely by kings before 1199. John, though, takes two or three times more scootages than ever before. And that is then restricted in Magna Carta because Magna Carta's chapters 12 and 14 state that no scootage in future is to be taken without the consent of the kingdom, without in effect, although he doesn't use the, the word, the, the consent of parliament. The consent of those who make the laws and the laws themselves again bye-bye to the whims of the king and it also curtailed his authority over widows <laughs> oh i'm not joking it really says here widows to preserve widows from being forced by the king into remarriage now before 1215 this was a very major source of patronage and revenue the king's ability to marry off widows to his henchmen as reward or alternatively which happened a great deal he would charge widows large sums of money for permission not to be forced into marriage now what Magna Carta says is that widows are not to be forced to be remarried any longer. The Charter has been called a major step in the emancipation of women. And the rule of their own lives. Then there's the most famous line of the Magna Carta. One which is still on the statute book of Britain today says no free man shall be imprisoned, exiled, deprived of property, save by the lawful judgment of his peers or by the law of the land. And that's a real beauty and about as close to a definition of the rule of law as you're gonna get. But it wasn't law for all or even for most. Now the catch there is free, no free man. And that meant that the unfree peasants who form the great bulk of the population are not protected by the Charter from um, any of those things. Or the most important thing they're not protected from is being deprived arbitrarily of their land. And that meant that their lords could simply um, chuck them off the land to discipline them. Uh, you know, if you're in any way difficult, recalcitrant, bolshie, the lord can simply... Uh, remove you from your land, deprive you of your, your living, and you have no legal recourse. Magna Carta does not protect you against that at all. It isn't talked about much, but the Magna Carta ain't perfect. It was actually completely thrown out of the window only a few years after it came to be. But it laid a stake, a stake in the ground that this rule of law thing should be a thing that it must be a thing a stake that could and would be expanded over the centuries to every citizen to every race in britain in america and now in the 123 democracies of the world 64 percent of the countries on earth there's clearly more way to go there's more to fight for and even in democratic countries like ours as we'll cover in this series the rule of law 
is often violated and must be perennially fought for. Something that the British barons understood. Then, at the end, the most stunning and revolutionary feature was that 25 barons were appointed, chosen by the barons themselves, in order to enforce the charter, and indeed to put right anything else the king does wrong. So a permanent executive is now set up to monitor royal government. And if you think the charter is being broken, you can appeal to the 25, and then the 25 are actually empowered in the charter itself to actually force the king to keep the charter and to put right any breaches in it by seizing his lands, his castles. In effect, by making war on the king, a resistance is made lawful. And there you have it, what you didn't know, some of the things I didn't know, and I went to a great American law school, the University of Virginia. And we're going to learn so much more about the rule of law in this twice-monthly series entitled as such. And if you want to find Rule of Law, go to iTunes and search for Rule of Law. And subscribe to Our American Network while you're at it. We love to talk about history because it's relevant in our lives today. From the Magna Carta comes the Constitution. From the Constitution comes all of our God-given rights. This is Lee Habib, the story of Magna Carta, here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and now we bring you the story of a Frenchman of, well, let's just say epic proportions, who had a major influence on the world of American entertainment. Here's Jesse. This is the story of a giant. If you're old enough to recognize the theme music here, you probably know exactly who we're talking about. The most famous giant in modern times, also known as the eighth wonder of the world, Andre the Giant stood at seven feet, four inches tall, and weighed over 500 pounds. Now, his height is actually debated, but I'll go with the bigger numbers because he deserves it, and that's the numbers his own website quoted. He was undefeated in the world of pro wrestling from 1973 to 1987 and held the title of WWF World Heavyweight Champion of the World. Now, we all know that pro wrestling is just for fun, right? But trust me, you wouldn't want to get thrown across the ring or sat on by this guy. Live to my left, the one and the only Andre the Giant and Andre the wrestling fans, indeed, the general public all over the entire world welcome the opportunity to see you in person. Thank you very much, and I uh, really appreciate that. And you say I'm traveling all over the world, the entire world, and I'm very happy traveling all over the world, and I'm very happy to see all those people, all different people, and all different countries. A world-famous wrestler, Andre the Giant was also an actor in films like The Princess Bride. Edith, or I'll call the Brute Squad. I'm on the Brute Squad. Born Andre Rasimov in France, his parents and four other siblings were all of pretty normal size. He suffered from a disease known as giantism, which gave him an overabundance of growth hormones, which made his body continue to grow through his entire life. He was six foot three and 208 pounds by the time he was 12 years old. Here's Andre's brother, Jacques, talking about growing up with Andre on the farm. Um, 
My parents were very cool. We had a lot of freedom. Of course, we had to work a lot because at that time we didn't have a lot of money. So on Thursdays with my brother, we had to cut wood to heat the house, and that was a good way to pass the time. My brother really started to grow when he reached 16. Yeah, when he was 16. He was kind of a curiosity. Of course, everybody looked at him, they turned their heads as he passed. He was very strong, that's for sure. We had a flat tire in the back and we didn't have a jack, so I unscrewed all the lug nuts, except for one. Suddenly he lifted the car and I would take the spare tire and we wouldn't need a jack anymore. That's when we could tell he was strong. Being so big wasn't very easy for young Andre. In fact, he was too big to fit on the school bus by this age and his parents couldn't afford a car to get him to and from school. Luckily, Andre had a kind neighbor with a truck that would help him get back and forth to school. This kind neighbor just happened to be Nobel Prize winner and esteemed playwright Samuel Beckett. Andre dropped out of school after the 8th grade because he didn't really think he would need an education to work on his father's farm. Eventually, his sheer size and weight caught the eye of a local wrestling promoter who convinced him to move to Paris at the age of 17. He was taught professional wrestling back when guys actually wrestled without all the stage antics like we see in the world of pro wrestling today. But it wasn't easy. Nobody wanted to wrestle the giant. He didn't know his own strength and it was hard to find an opponent willing to take him on. But he gradually made a name for himself and he toured all over the world as a spectacle in the sport until he was hired by Vince McMahon Sr., founder of the World Wrestling Federation known at the time as the WWF, which went on to become WWE. Little disclaimer here, I don't watch this stuff anymore. I I sure liked it when I was a kid. Andre the Giant was the best. He soon became an international celebrity, and people would drive for miles just to see him in action. On March 26, 1973, Andre the Giant debuted as WWF fan favorite, defeating Buddy Wolf in New York's Madison Square Garden. Fast forward to 1987, and he was wrestling Hulk Hogan at WrestleMania III in Pontiac, Michigan. There were 93,173 people in the crowd that night, the largest recorded attendance of a live indoor event in North America at the time, a record that would stand until 1999 when Pope John Paul II visited St. Louis. Here's Hulk Hogan. Andre is a superstar. He was the biggest and greatest superstar this business has ever known and ever will know. I mean, he was Andre the Giant. He's the one that laid the groundwork for Hulk Hogan, for Stone Cold Steve Austin, for The Rock, for anybody else that walks through these doors of the WWE universe, it wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for Andre the Giant. You know, and and to know him as a superstar and the Giant, I remember when I was a fan, I used to watch him, and he would just put his hand on the top rope and lean over the top rope when he was in his prime, and I would just look at his hip and his leg hanging off the ring. It looked like a Clydesdale. You know, it was bigger than anything I'd ever seen and never dreamed I'd be friends with him or ever get to meet him but you know to fast forward to you know him being the greatest of all time and as a person what he went through because if I would walk behind him in the airport I would hear oh my gosh did you see that guy or a lot of very unkind things were said you know and he could hear him and and for him to walk through and be as kind of a person as he was and as gentle of a person. Because if he would have been a mean person, there would have been none of us around. There would have been, talk about the guy that never got pinned, that would have been the guy. By most accounts, Andre was a jovial giant, content to play cards, socialize, and enjoy all the food and drink his success afforded him. 
During matches, he amused himself by stepping on an opponent's long hair or wringing out the sweat from his singlet into their face. In one bout, Jake the Snake Roberts recalled that Andre waited until Roberts was on the mat as he squatted down and unleashed his flatulence. According to Roberts, this went on for 30 seconds because giants fart for extremely long periods of time. Aside from wrestling, Andre the Giant landed several roles in the movies. Most notably, he played Fazik in The Princess Bride. Here's co-producer of that unforgettable film, Rob Reiner. Andre was a great guy, very smart, but Andre liked to drink. Andre liked a little drink. One day he comes to work and I said, Andre, uh, what did you do last night? And he says, uh, I went to the bar, had a couple of drinks. I said, well, what do you drink? He says, uh, three bottles of cognac, six bottles of wine. I said, Andre, do you, get, you must have been drunk. He said, no, I don't, I don't get drunk. A little tipsy, but no. So now the day we're supposed to shoot, the ending of the movie, which we shot and didn't use, because we have, you know, Peter Falk saying, as you wish. We had the little boy, after Peter Falk leaves, he leafs through the book, and he starts, you know, reliving it. And then we had the four heroes on the four white horses. He looks out the window, and he sees them, and he waves to them. So we had these four white horses, and we had Andre. We had to, you know, he's 500 pounds, so there's no horse that could support him. So we had to figure out a way to lift, you know, lower him from the ceiling on, like, cables, and... Uh, that day, the Nouveau Beaujolais came out, and he started drinking about 9 o'clock in the morning. He drank, like, I'm not exaggerating, like 20 bottles of Nouveau Beaujolais, and I'm now at the end of a day. It's 8 o'clock at night. I'm walking to the end of Shepard and Studios. It's kind of a misty rain, and they open the, the, the doors of the stage, and there comes from the ceiling a 500-pound drunken giant. And he's waving at me, and he's going, hello, boss, like this. And I'm thinking, what do I do for a living? Andre the Giant's drinking habits were legendary. Reports say that he could drink anywhere from 100 to 200 beers in one sitting, and it wouldn't even give him a buzz. Wrestling promoter Arnold Scotland remembers one particular night at a bar with Andre the Giant. One night he was in a bar in uh, Montreal, and he's... Guys come up and they were bothering him, you know, hey, you're not, you're big, but you're not strong. As if Andre said, look, I just come in here and drink. I don't want to, you know, no problems or anything. Well, these guys kept on, on him. They were, you know, feeling pretty good. Andre couldn't take it any longer. He finally got up and he went for him. They ran out and their car was parked on a, on a sidewalk right in front of the place. They jumped in the car and locked it. And Andre ran around to the side of the driver's side, trying to open the door. He couldn't. And, uh... He got so mad, he reached down, he grabbed the car, and he turned it upside down on the sidewalk with the four guys in it. Now, Andre was able to leave the scene before police arrived to find an upturned car with four drunk hooligans inside. Imagine trying to explain to a cop that a giant had just tipped over their car. And this wasn't the only time. Andre would frequently move his friends' cars into positions that were impossible to get out of, like between two trees or sideways in their driveway. His hands were so large you could fit a silver dollar through one of his rings. Forget playing the piano or dialing a phone. The fingers you have used to dial are too fat. To obtain a special dialing wand, please mash the keypad with your palm now. Andre the Giant could easily walk into a restaurant and eat 12 steaks and 15 lobsters in one sitting. But being 7 foot tall with a fluctuating weight around 450 to 550 pounds, life was never easy. Tim White was Andre's friend and personal handler. 
you're just going to be in his shoes for a second to understand what he went through day in, day out. He couldn't hide from anybody. Wherever he went, he was public. People swarmed to him. Uh, when he got into a hotel room, the bed was too small. The shower came up to his waistline. His fingers were too big to dial the phone. I mean, the guy went through heck every day. And not once did he ever complain. Sometimes he wasn't private in his room because people would chase you up the elevator and find out what room and call your room all night. We've had it. We used to have to check out a hotel sometimes because it got to be too much. It was incredible to me, the patience that he had. Sadly, over the years, the effects of his medical condition had continued to wear down his body. Eventually, his immense size was just too much for his heart, and Andre the Giant died in Paris in his hotel room on January 27, 1993. His body was flown back to the United States, where his remains were cremated and scattered on his ranch in North Carolina. The ashes weighed 17 pounds. He was 46 years old when he died, and doctors told him he wouldn't live past 40. Though professionally, Andre will always be remembered as the eighth wonder of the world. He's known and loved by fans across the globe as the Gentle Giant. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. <laughs>